I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As this country is in the grip of many stresses right now, one of them is drug addiction. And we'll talk to someone next who overcame addiction but lost their career but found their life calling. Here next on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please. Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As as I stated earlier, we will be talking to somebody about uh, overcoming the evils of addiction and losing a promising career, but winning in life overall. And today's guest is Rick Smith Jr. How you doing, Rick? I'm doing well, thank you, JB. Thanks for having me here. No problem, no problem at all. So. Uh, you wouldn't know this, but uh, growing up as a young man in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, oddly enough, in the inner city of St. Louis, my favorite sport was hockey. So anytime mm. I can talk with a hockey guy, it's always a big thing for me. So, Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to the, to the conversation here. Sure. Uh, so just to kind of give my uh, listeners a fill-in, to your background, you were born in Ohio, but then early in life moved to Michigan, and I take it you fell in love with hockey, and can you kind of fill in your um, origin story in hockey? Yeah, sure. So uh, it, it stems back to my father. We've got a very uh, large, extensive hockey background, um, uh, which I'll get into here, but my, my father 
was really the catalyst to that. Uh, he played for the Cincinnati Bearcats growing up. Um, and then, uh, you know, he was in the minors for, for a hot minute. Um, my grandfather, so my, my mother's, uh, father, Bill McCreary, um, okay. he, you, you would have seen him play in St. Louis. Yes, I'm, I'm, <laughs> a matter of fact, I have this, um, I'm sitting at my computer and I have this computer mat, you know, uh, chair mat that's clear. And it has the photos of the original St. Louis Blues under it, and Bill. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh! That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's my grandfather. Okay. He, uh, yeah, he had um, he had a little stint there with Detroit as well, uh, and he was in um, played for the New York Rangers, and then um, finished out his career uh, in the NHL with uh, St. Louis, but yeah, they went, they went all the way to the finals back in that glorious picture of Bobby Orr going across the crease. Uh, he was on that team, of course, lost, uh, lost against the Bruins that season, but yeah. So, you know, of course, uh, as, as a young kid and hearing these stories and, you know, my grandfather to his brother, Keith McCreary, who was the captain for the Atlanta flames before they went to Calgary. Okay. He also was in, played for the Montreal Canadiens, uh, and then he also at one point was the assistant captain for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And then you have uh, Ron Atwell, my another great uncle, who played for uh, the Rangers. He played for St. Louis. And then his son, Bob Atwell, my cousin, um, he played for the Colorado Rockies. Uh, and then you also have Bill McCreary, who I just mentioned, my grandfather, who played for St. Louis, his son, Bill McCreary. Uh, played for Toronto, and he's notorious for that big hit that he had on Wayne Gretzky on the blue line. And then we have another cousin, Bill McCreary, uh, who was the NHL referee for so many years and um, a while back was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And then other various cousins, you know, like myself, that played in the minor league ranks, played in the OHL juniors. Uh, and, and we even – I've got a, a nephew today who um, – uh, he is playing college hockey right now. So, yeah, very extensive within the family dynamics there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so do you have any ties with hockey at this point? So uh, still with athletes um, that are that are playing, yes, uh, whether that be from a coaching, um, from mindset. Uh, I help, you know, athletes like next week i've got a speaking engagement for a triple a hockey team where i go in and just help them out with brain performance so um and then you know i've got the nutritional component too i'm also certified in exercise nutrition as a sports nutritionist so i've i've worked with you know youth uh high school um to college to professional to even olympians um and then uh you know even on the coaching side from having a certification as a USA weightlifting sports performance coach. So I kind of hit all, all mm -hmm. uh, areas from the mindset, you know, the nutrition, and then of course um, the, the weightlifting, the, the conditioning piece to it. Um, my training, well, one of my trainings in college was I was a student athletic manager. It was with football, but it's some, oh, okay. sometimes during the year I would do laundry for the uh, men's hockey team at the university. Oh boy. So I, uh, <laughs> I've seen plenty of things in locker room, hockey locker rooms. I bet before. you have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, uh, I didn't plan on talking about this, but I got to talk, got to ask you a question about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The explosion of nutritionists in, uh, sports 
especially I see, you know, colleges all have that as a staff person where when I first, I'm 60 years old, when I first got into okay. college athletics, that wasn't even a thought. Um, can you expand upon uh, why that is so important and why the colleges are really getting into that? Sure. Yeah. And it's even expanded from when I first started to play. I mean, the education that I have today, I wish I would have had that back, uh, you know, at the beginning stages of my junior career and even, you know, younger. My dad was pretty adamant on that. I'll, I'll come back here full circle. I feel like he was ahead of the curve, but mm-hmm. he was kind of something that planted in my brain. Even back then, he said, look, son, you know, hockey's meant to be fun, but this is turning into a career because you've committed to that. This is a very expensive sport, of course, playing AAA hockey, and we need to treat ourselves like we're professional athletes. So what do the pros do? They eat well. And so he started planting that seed early, but carrying that on, that message kind of always stuck with me. Um, But in the depths of understanding that now, uh, just from different certifications that I have, uh, what they find, you know, of course, you know, your eating will impact all areas of your life from your mental capacity to your sleep, to how you recover, to your performance on the ice. So, uh, just many different areas of focusing on, if you're going to be a high performer, you know, high level performance athlete, we got to treat our bodies like we're, you know, driving Ferraris. Well, and you're correct. You see that in all aspects. I can definitely tell when I've eaten something or drank something that I shouldn't have because my body hasn't, uh, even at my age, has an automatic uh, change. Like I can, I don't drink soda anymore, and I've basically I maybe have one a month, and there might I might go three months without one, and I can definitely. That's good. I can definitely tell when I have that one because I get kind of sluggish, kind of numb. <laughs> it just does. I just don't feel good. It just it just feels like um, you know a dip in in energy and whatnot. And and I hear uh, coworkers of mine talk about how they feel after a meal and whatnot. And you know I've seen what you know they've run to this fast food burger joint or that one or you know. Or just just grab something greasy, and they then they'll tell you, "Oh, my yeah. stomach and this, that, and the other." And they're kind of, you know, they're not performing even at, you know. And I work at a warehouse, but um, even there, you can tell when guys have like a bad meal because their performance dips. So, and, sure. And I know it was, it was one of the, about five years ago, the college athletes demanded some changes, and one of them was that nutrition got better and and, yep. and got more plentiful for them and on top of mental health and strength training. So it sounds like you got all the bases covered with your background. Yeah, it's I, I really became passionate about that. Um, it, it stems really all the way back to uh, 2009 where I, I started to make a transition in my in my life, just what I was doing professionally at that time. And, um, I just was always fascinated, you know, about the body and the mind and my dad. Again, I go back to my dad because he was my, my mentor growing up, my coach. And, um, he, again, I, he was just way ahead of the curve. He's a, you know, he, he, um, credentialed in psychology and went to Madonna university back here, which is a notable school. Uh, and, uh, you know, he has his own practice now, um, where he's a, he's a counselor, but, um, 
you know, just from a, from a psychology standpoint to the foods that you're putting in your body, it does, it, it impacts all areas of your life. And regardless of being an athlete, uh, you know, just for people from a day to day, you know, a lot of people talk about not having that, uh, energy that they're, that they want or that they're looking for. And, you know, if we focus on all areas from, you know, at least getting some movement in daily, getting that nutritional piece locked down. And I call it the 80, 20 lifestyle. Cause again, like, uh, you know, I still love my baked goods and, you know, some, some, I like to, you know, uh, divulge into some other things, you right. know, as far as, uh, pies and cookies and all those good things, but you know, I do it in moderation. Um, and then the, the, the component to the mindset side of it, you know, being a behavior change coach, um, you know, it's really just helping people start making changes in their life, you know, from the things that they're listening to, to the, to the choices that they're making on what they're reading to what they're watching, because all these things play into our, our mental capabilities uh, and it's going to lead us in one direction or the other. And so, um, yeah, just I was really, uh, I would say, almost hyper focused in all areas that took, you know, a course of action over a number of years of really uh, becoming, you know, um, really passionate about what I'm doing and helping others. Well, you just spoke about moderation. Uh, in your lifetime, you had an issue with moderation. Mm. Um uh, what was your drug of choice? Yeah, so, you know, uh, uh, initially with my addiction, it was all alcohol related, you know, child of an alcoholic. Um, and of course, saw those learned behaviors growing up in the household. But, you know, it was just primarily I had tried some drugs. I remember I was 15 years old and I was actually at the uh, Windsor train station. I was coming back from Toronto waiting for my dad to pick me up. And, you know, you'd think he wouldn't be trying to do things before your father was picking you up from the bus station. Yeah. But I had a teammate with me and he had some hash on a quarter. And he's like, you ever tried this? I'm like, no. And I said, what is it? He's like, all right, we smoke it. I'm like, cool, let's do it. You know, and so that was kind of my first interaction with uh, with drugs. Um, but, you know, I went into rehab when I was 21 years old. And again, just the primary focus for me at that time uh, was drinking. And unfortunately, you know, I did have a certain period of a maintenance phase uh, is what you want to call it um, for about six to seven months. But then I, I relapsed. And when I relapsed, the crazy thing, JB, is my, you know, it's, it's progressive and it just continues to get worse. And with my addiction, what happened was. I started trying different things, cocaine to ecstasy to crystal meth. Like these were all the things I started to dabble in. And then at the end of it all, cocaine and ecstasy were just at the height of everything that I was doing. And it was almost like alcohol was secondary. That would be kind of just the primer. Uh, forgive me for jumping ahead, but I, uh, when you brought up the word moderation, I thought that might be a good time to at least introduce the addic addiction. But I want to now jump back to your youth, um, what uh, uh, organization owned your rights, and did you ever play in the NHL? Yeah, so that was um, the team that was an under affiliation. We actually had a double affiliation with that team was actually the New Orleans Brass and the East Coast Hockey League. Uh, that was with Nashville and San Jose. Okay. Um, yep, and then, you know, my career, uh, it, you know, again, it all had to do with the addiction that I had because actually from that team, you know, you'd think, um, you know, that pretty much that whole team was under contract. Uh, and you'd think that, um, you know, you'd want to be making sure that you were doing everything possible to get to the next level. Um, 
that was an NHL, NHL coach by the name of Ted Sater. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so Teddy, you know, uh, I was having a great start to the season. Being on the power play, was putting up numbers, was actually having a breakout um, sophomore season. And um, he was putting me in all key situations. But, you know, my off-ice habits weren't conducive of being able to continue to perform at the level I was producing. And so what happened was, you know, my body just couldn't keep up uh, with the drugs and the drinking and getting in at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and just totally depleted. Um, what happened was towards the end of the season, about two to three weeks before playoffs started, they started to put me uh, as a healthy scratch. And, um, and of course, no, nothing wrong with my body, but uh, they weren't happy with my play and they were sending a message to me and I was trying to figure out what it was. And I kind of had like, you know, you kind of know in the back of your head, you're like, is it this? But then you were like, you know what? I know they know. And so uh, unfortunately what happened was Teddy said, Hey, we got a meeting with the general manager. I need you to come in. And, uh, you know, that's never a good feeling knowing what's about to transpire. You know, that big lump in your throat, that right. pit in your stomach feeling where it's just awful. Um, walking down to the GM's room and then finally getting in there and sitting down. And it was pretty quick. They just said, look, you know, uh, you had a great start to the season. You've obviously been you know, focused on your off ice and, and what you're doing outside of the arena too much. And, um, you know, Teddy said to me, look, some guys can do this off the ice and some guys can't, and you're not one of them, Rick. And, uh, it was pretty tough pill to swallow at that time. So, um, you know, that kind of ended my career early. I mean, I was, uh, you know, 22 at the time being released from that hockey team. Uh, and I'm going to apologize here again. I'm going to take you a back a little bit further in your life. Yeah, no worries. Um, so I take it you played um, junior, and uh, did was there any college or high school hockey involved? Yeah, so I got uh, I was I went to the USHL, um, was tendered there by the Des Moines Buccaneers. Okay. Uh, and the coach at that time was Bob Ferguson. Um, the summer leading into that team, he had actually, I had a bad uh, injury. I was at the Olympic Training Center and had actually made the U.S. Um, team there. And uh, he, he took me aside before we went in for final cuts. And he was like, look, you know, Smitty, of course, my last name's Smith, so my nickname was Smitty in hockey. He said, uh, you know, come over here and sit with me on the bench. And I said, okay, what's going on, Fergie? And he's like, look, you know, you've made this hockey team, but I can't take you. And, uh, you know, we got to put somebody in there who's not injured. And I said, I completely understand. You got to do what's best for USA hockey. And, um, the cool thing was through that process though, is he ended up uh, protecting me, went into Des Moines and, um, unfortunately he, uh, took opportunity for me. It was unfortunate for him. He was moving up, uh, Mm -hmm. at the time the international hockey league, uh, was prevalent too. So, he took an opportunity there and um, I still had hopes of uh, playing college hockey. That was kind of the the game plan at the time between my, my father and I having those conversations. You know, I had talked to red cause he had played with my grandpa at oh, St. Louis yes. and yes. Uh, red Berenson, yeah. um, you know, at Michigan there. And then of course had conversations with uh, Ron Mason at Michigan state and was getting letters from Lake Superior and, Jeff Jackson and Johnny LaFonte. So anyways, all the, the college letters were coming in and they wanted me to, to go and, and look at their schools and whatnot. Um, 
So college was on the forefront, but at the same time, we had played the, you know, both sides of the fence, so to speak. And I was drafted in the OHL to the Windsor Spitfires. So into the Ontario hockey league, major junior. Um, and after another season in the USHL, uh, my dad and I just made the decision that, you know, I'm going to go to where I was drafted in the OHL to Windsor, gave up my college eligibility. Cause of course, at that point you were getting paid to play. Um, so I was getting, you know, paid, uh, in hockey when I was still in high school. And so, um, you know, gave up the eligibility to go to college and, uh, uh, went the OHL route until that ran its course. Um, you know, when you're, you can actually play your overage year at the age of 20. So once that ran its course, then I, uh, I went from there to getting pulled up, um, uh, to play my first year professional signing a contract with the Birmingham Bulls. Uh, when you were in, in Canada, did you have a billet family? I did. Yeah. I actually played, uh, I played for the Kitchener Rangers. I actually played under, um, Pete DeBoer who was in, uh, for the Plymouth Whalers before he went on to Kitchener, mm-hmm. um, played in Kitchener. Of course, Pete's still coaching in the NHL now today, but, um, yeah, I lived with a billet family there. I lived with a billet family when I moved away at 15 to Toronto with two different families because I w- did back-to-back seasons up there when I was 15 and 16 years old. Uh, billet family in Des Moines, Iowa. And then I actually had one more stop even that next season in Omaha, playing for the Omaha Lancers in the USHL. So, yeah, a lot of different high schools, <laughs> uh, including Canadian um, high school. And then, uh, you know, I went to five high schools, including back home here and then had five billet families. So <laughs> can you, it was a lot. Can you explain to the listeners what a billet family is? Oh, of course. Yeah. So uh, what happens in different communities, um, really, uh, you know, in the U S and even uh, in Canada um, is there'll be families connected to hockey teams who are willing to open up their home for players. So they'll take you in for the hockey season, of course, house you. Um, and then, you know, there's so much the money that goes towards those families, um, you know, obviously with groceries that are being in the home and taking care of laundry and whatnot. So, yeah, you're basically uh, you're under their rules. Um <laughs> of engagement basically at their home. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I always had a great experience with the different families that I lived with. Yeah, that is something that is a question I've always want to ask a hockey person, but I've never thought about asking. So, and and most of the, most of the guys I know here, you know, they played college hockey and then, then wound up in the I or the E or wherever. And then, then the, then the league, um, so going back to that day that, that, uh, teammate introduced you to, uh, that drug, mm-hmm. um, did something click in your head that said, I like feeling this way or it didn't like feeling this way or what happened for you? Yeah. You know, even with alcohol, uh, I did like the feeling that I had from, you know, being numbed out. Um, I think for me, you know, I was just more of that curious George. Um, there was of course always that little voice in the back of my head saying like, uh, I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't good. Um, but just kind of bypassed it, you know, put that thought to the side, kind of stuffed it down and said, you know, let's, let's try this. Let's see what this is all about. So even at 15 years old, 
Uh, and with uh, most addictions, people who recover from it, there's a low. What was the low for you? That that moment that says I got to get out of this. Yeah, I. You know, I as I mentioned earlier, I went into rehab when I was 21 and was sober my first year of um, my first year being in the minors, so my first year pro, and I had a great season, great start, scored my first professional hat trick um, that season. And uh, towards the end of the season, though, I reverted back to some old behaviors, old ways, and that was kind of the first point where I'm like, all right, the unmanageability is starting to take over. Um, and it got progressively worse, as I mentioned, you know, then I got released from that second hockey team. Uh, and then from there, I was engaged um, to someone before my current wife. And she essentially gave the ring back and said, look, I, I can't do this with you. Uh, you know, you got to get your life in order. And, um, you know, that was that was my bottom for me. So, you know, I'd never been to jail, never had a DUI you know, never killed anybody. never was in a major car accident from, you know, drunk driving or using drugs. But I mean, that is a big, but, uh, mm -hmm. there, there should have been many times, uh, where I was, you know, being taken to, to jail or, you know, uh, I know, you know, the big Lord was, was looking over me, uh, because there's, there's just too many times where I was in a blackout and then the next morning didn't know where my car was. So, um, you know, being, uh, super high on drugs and, uh, you know, had no business operating a, a vehicle. So yeah, uh, I, when I evaluated myself and where my life was going, there was really, there was really one option. Uh, if I chose to go down that addiction path further and it was well, three options, uh, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to be in an insane asylum or I'm going to jail or prison. Like mm -hmm. those were my options. If I, if I decided to go and continue down the addiction or I could hit the other Y in the road and I'd already been sober. So, you know, I already had support from before and those, you know, uh, people were still in, in, uh, the community and being sober. And, um, you know, I had the connections of getting help if I wanted to. And, uh, you know, JV, like I, I had enough pain. Um, you know, from my fiance at that time, giving the ring back, uh, losing my hockey career. You know, there's another component to this, too, from a mental illness standpoint that, you know, I got lost in the identity of being a hockey player my whole life growing up, you know, going through, you know, high school and my friends knowing, oh, that's Rick, the hockey player. Oh, there's Rick, Rick, the hockey player. You know, that was continued to be the label and the title for me all the way through my youth and, and moving up. And so, you know, now you, you wake up one day and you're not Rick, the hockey player. So who am I? I've, I've failed myself. I've failed my family, all the relatives, you know, that you're trying to fill the shoes of those that, you know, went on and played in the NHL. You know, you have all this shame, guilt, and remorse because you had the opportunities, but you were so in love with your addiction that it stole that from me. And so all of those feelings that were going on and, and again, just circling back to, the big topic that I always like to talk to about people on this is being just lost in the identity of Rick, the hockey player. Mm -hmm. So, uh, even through all of that pain and analyzing myself, you know, analytics, uh, is this working or is it not? It was for sure not working anymore. So, um, that's where that last time, uh, you know, I, I picked up the phone and, and I wanted to live because 
suicide had entered my mind, you know, had immense uh, thoughts, you know, uh, deep, dark thoughts on suicide of ending my life. And um, thank God, you know, uh, the person who picked up that phone that day, he, you know, he didn't uh, he didn't look at me any differently. He didn't judge me. He just said, you know what, grab a shower, dust yourself off. We're going to grab dinner and I'm going to take you to a support group meeting. And that was the first time back, you know, that was would have been February 17th of 2003 is my sobriety date. Well, congratulations on that. Um, I kind of thank you. I kind of understand the identity thing for. uh, In in some ways, in 20, 20 years of full time life, but 40 years as a student manager, as a volunteer and intern, a part timer and whatnot. For 40 years, Mm -hmm. I was an equipment person. And that was mm. my identity. And, you know, it was mm-hmm. TV. He works for this team or that team, or he does this, he does that. And then all of a sudden, I didn't anymore. And it's kind of hard to understand what people think of you when you lose your identity. And, Absolutely. And you start to even question yourself. Did you? Uh, yes. In my case, did I do? Did I do something wrong? You know. Or, do people hate me now? All these different things. Um, and, you know, there was no drug or alcohol or nothing involved in my case. It was just a life choice decision because I didn't like the people I was working under anymore. And I just hit an age where it was like moving doesn't make sense, you know, because, you know, I was in my late 50s at that point And I had set up a home, uh, not a house, but a home. And it was like, well, it doesn't make sense to leave. So right. the only other option is to do something different. So, yep. and that's what I'm doing. So was that how things were for you? Yeah. You know, it, it was, a, and that's the thing about my life. Um, when I look back and I kind of look at the theme of, of what's transpired, you know, there's these, these ebb and flows to transitional moments in my life. And I would say that now at the age of 44, uh, I've just, I've continued to evolve. And so I kind of look at life as like an ebb and flow. There's certain areas where you go down a path and you're like, yeah, okay, this is working for the time being, but I'm not really sure that I want to be staying here. And so you make a transition. Uh, for some, they don't, and they stay stuck. And then this unhappiness just creeps in and they're wondering why they don't have this joy and happiness within them anymore. And so for me, I had to really figure out like, what am I passionate about separate from being a hockey player? Like that was the real big kicker for me because, you know, we had a family owned mortgage company. My uncle, you know, that I mentioned earlier that played in the NHL, you had my dad, my mom, my grandma working there. I had aunts and cousins. So it was truly a, a family owned mortgage company. At one point we were, we were the, um, the NHL uh, uh, alumni um, preferred mortgage lender. Okay. So, a lot of great things that were going on there. And it was just like, I saw the dollar signs, uh, Mm -hmm. and you know, I'm in my early twenties. So, you know, for me and I was single, uh, it was just more of like something that was, you know, filling up the bank account. I didn't, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't a purpose or like, I felt like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It was just something that I was doing. So like I mentioned earlier, you know, I always had this passion and love for, fitness and working out. My dad ingrained something in me very early on um, where he started putting together and programming workout programs for me when I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. 
and I've carried that on even till today. Like I, you know, five times a week for me still today. And some would say that I train like a, a professional athlete. Uh, so it's just something that has been ingrained for so long, but you know, all that to be said, I was super passionate about that. I was super passionate about, um, uh, you know, nu- the nutritional aspect of it. And then again, on the whole mindset. So I had this major shift that had happened once, uh, you know, I, I was kind of getting done with the mortgage industry. And by the way, what was interesting about my story, my story too, is I did have another opportunity where I think it was the 0405 lockout NHL season. Um, but there was a team in Detroit called the Motor City Mechanics. And so uh, I actually came out of retirement that season. And um, to bring light to this whole story towards the last half of the season, that's when Chris Chelios came on board to Darian Hatcher, to Brian Smolenski, to Sean Avery. So uh, it was just kind of a, a crazy whirlwind of a season to come back to that, uh, but a very fun experience. And then, you know, I played for the Flint, the last, the very last team that I played for uh, was the Flint Generals. And that was the last season uh, that the IHL was intact. And so we made it all the way to the finals against Fort Wayne. And that was the, that was it for me. And so at that whole transitional period of me being done with hockey and I knew it was coming um, you know, here I am in my early thirties. It's not like I was going to get another opportunity to try and try and make it to the NHL. Um, I got involved with someone at a country club who was able to get me in the door and start becoming a personal trainer at the time. And then I opened up a, a studio locally in my hometown and started working with athletes and workout enthusiasts, um, uh, and various other type of people who wanted to work out. So, uh, not to mention there was another gentleman by the name of Chris Tamer. He had a long NHL career, but he started a CrossFit facility. So I started to work there as well. So I just started planning myself in these different environments, um, to where it really started to shape and form my, my new passion essentially. So it helped me, uh, kind of get past, you know, um, the transitional moment period in my life from going from Rick, the hockey player to now moving on. Now I'm sober, you know, I'm, I'm married to my wife. She's never seen me drink or drug, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm into the whole, uh, basically holistic side of life. Um, and so that was a big, that was the big transitional moment for me. Uh, I have someone in my life where he, he was a mentor of mine in the equipment business, and um, he is probably one of the oddities in the whole addiction world. Uh, this rarely happens. He qu- basically quit cold turkey. <laughs> now, wow. <laughs> now, there was the, the thought of losing his job, which scared him straight, but... Um, and, I mean, he used to drink himself blind to the point where he would hide money for himself and wouldn't find it until the next morning where he would dig it out of his socks where he hid it so wow. he wouldn't spend it all. Or yeah. he would park his car downtown and couldn't remember where he parked it, so he would go through basically all of downtown trying to remember his steps to find his car and things like that. And he... uh 
just woke up one day and said, this has got to stop. And he was able to. Now, to reinforce his, his sobriety, you know, probably four or five years later, he, he took the steps that most people take to get out, you know, to uh, start their sober life, which is uh, rehab and counseling mm-hmm. and whatnot. But, no, he, yep. he just basically just stopped. <laughs> and we, to this day, all scratch our heads who knew him, who, who know him because he's still alive, um, and uh, try to figure out how did that work. So uh, why doesn't uh, going cold turkey work? Yeah, and that, I love this question because, like, look, there's there's so many things that we deal with. And, and what I found was um, for myself and I, and I know for many others, and even my dad would share the same sentiment with what he does professionally as a counselor. But a lot of what's not dealt with from our childhood creeps into – and then comes out sideways as we continue to, to get older Correct. and become adults and whatnot. So there's this masking that goes on. Um, and then, you know, for that type of example, somebody goes cold Turkey, that's great, but we almost call it like white knuckling because we still haven't dealt with and, and putting down the bottle and, and the drugs and whatever that is like 100%. That's amazing. Um, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying here mm-hmm. because, that is just one component to it. Now that we put it down, what are we going to do to get, you know, I'll just use me as an example. What are we going to do to get Rick right, you know, uh, from a mental side of things? So we got to go back. We got to go back to, you know, just like you mentioned, he went to rehab and counseling. So I had went to rehab. I worked with counselors. I was going to support group meetings. And so what you do through this whole process is it's a discovery and you'd start doing what's called a a personal more inventory of yourself and you start identifying like all these, you know, bad things uh, that you've been doing to not just the bad, but what are some great traits that I have? Uh, but you start uncovering what is the core issue on why I was numbing out. And so if we're not doing that, then it's just basically leaving the skeletons in the closet and we're not going to be able to be the true healthy Rick um, to live the full potential that I want to live. If I don't go and attack those things that were, uh, making me numb out through the drugs and the drinking. So, you know, again, I think putting it down is great, but, uh, I know what it does from the experience of going to work on, on myself and seeing it in other people and what that's done for them too. So that's, that's just as important because that's the beginning stages of where you start to see the transition within yourself. It's almost like the, I like to describe it as the, the five steps to behavior change. Cause you go from pre-contemplation, just basically being on the first step of behavior change, which is essentially saying, I don't have a problem or there's, you know, there's nothing to talk about here. And then you go to the fourth step where now we're talking about contemplation and it's really about, okay, there's something wrong here, but I don't know if I'm ready to change yet. So someone will stay at step four. And then someone who, you know, decides to take take the next step after contemplation is number three, which is um, preparing for action. Mm -hmm. So this person is saying, okay, you know what? I've identified the problem. Help me get to the next step. I'm ready to take action. So now it's going from three to two, and this person's into action 
they're coachable and teachable. Maybe that looks like going to counseling or they're going to therapy or they've gone to rehab, whether that's, you know, in person or outpatient, you know, whatever that might look like for that individual. And, but they're, they're physically taking the actionable steps on that. And then, then you've got the, the number one, which is basically maintenance. So the maintenance phase is somebody who continues to maintain that new change that they're experiencing in their life. And so this will be someone who's been doing this continuous for six to 12 months and beyond. And essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to get somebody out of pre-contemplation up to maintenance and then not relapsing and going back down again. So all of that to be said, the only way we can get somebody to maintenance and get out of those old behaviors is we got to start taking action steps, which means we got to dive into our, our old self and start removing and peeling back the onion on that. Uh, this next question, and I don't know if you had to go through it, uh, and I've always heard this, most people trade one addiction for another. Was yes. that the case for you? And uh and if it was, what was it for you? Yeah, so when I first uh, went into rehab, it was all alcohol-related. When I relapsed, um, got out of that maintenance phase, as I just mentioned, you know, I switched from essentially, like alcohol was always a part of the equation, but once I got my taste of cocaine and ecstasy and whatnot, other various drugs, I was like, where are we getting our drugs from? So it, it completely flipped, flip, mm -hmm. uh, flip-flopped. Um when I finally got sober this last time, what happened was I got sober and now it's like, okay, what am I going to fill this void with this passion that I had for the drugs and alcohol? Where is that energy going? And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I just, I immersed myself. I got so far away from my old self. And by the way, <laughs> I used to smoke a half a pack a day. I used to chew in between periods, you know, chew tobacco. So, um, all of those things are out of my life today. I, I don't do that anymore. Uh, but you are totally sober. <laughs> yeah, like totally sober. <clears throat> and and it was really in my first two to three years when I first got sober where I was actually still smoking and chewing tobacco. And then one day, JB, like the switch just went off and I was just like, I'm done. I'm done with all this. Uh, so <laughs> I used to smoke cigars with my dad, everything. And it just everything. I just pushed it all out, you know, put it in the the backseat and lit it on fire essentially and said, I'm done. Um, but yeah, you know, I filled the void, you know, with something that, uh, people would call it an obsession if they want to call it an addiction or super passionate about, uh, but it, you know, fitness, I got into doing Ironman triathlon, which took me around the world, went to visit some great places. You know, my wife and I got to travel a lot, going to Switzerland, to Germany, to Wales, to Quebec, all over the place doing the uh, the full Ironman, the 140.6 Ironman. Wow. So that really helped me. Um, that really helped me heal through a period of time where I was still early on in my recovery. Uh, and it really gave me this self-discovery of what I was actually capable of as Rick, the human being. And so there was a lot of things that kind of manifested through that process. But, you know, I did that for a while and that ran its course. But, you know, again, going back to the whole mindset, you know, uh, the nutrition, physical, and then also work, working on my spiritual uh, program as well. I just completely immersed myself in all of that. Now, with your um, your life sober and you're into your into your new life and your your new calling, as as I guess we could call it. Yeah. Yes, um, it is. Uh, 
Uh, I got a couple of questions, and these are kind sure. of selfish questions. Um, as I stated earlier, I'm 60 years old. Uh, uh, being near athletes kind of made me like a side uh, sideline athlete in a way. You know, I played baseball from the age 30, age 35 until I finally hung up the cleats this summer at, at the end of this summer, and um, and I still run two to three days a week. You know, three to four miles at a time. Nice. Uh, and, and, and rehab in between because the body ain't getting any younger. And, yeah, and yeah. I, and I have a broken ankle and I refuse to oh. have the surgery. So I, oh, man. I, I kind of uh, rehab to, toward in it. Um, why is it that most uh, exercise programs don't help us with weight loss? Yeah, and, and this is... You know, when it comes to weight loss, there are so many things going into the equation of that. Uh, and and I, I had uh, somebody recently, you know, I went through all the things to help them with weight loss. And they said, no, like, what's the supplement that I take that I can take that's going to help me with that? Here's the thing about weight loss. You know, everybody wants to put everything in the microwave, hit go for a minute 30, and then boom, it pops out, it's done. And so when we're talking about, you know, uh, running or working out in general, like that's part of the equation. It's not all of the equation. And so other things that impact, you know, um, uh, our weight loss is our hormones. And so how do we impact our hormones? It's the way that we're working out. It's the foods that we're eating. How much sleep are we getting a night? You know, if you're just cruising on, call it four to five hours of sleep, you're not giving your body's ability to do what it needs to do. And, you know, uh, everything that we talk about in, re in regards to nutrition and sleep and movement is, yes, we need cortisol to be released in the body. That creates inflammation. And it, there's a purpose for when we're working out and eating. But what we need to do while we're sleeping is we need to prioritize sleep. And what I find that when I work with people is they're not prioritizing their sleep. They're on their phones and getting the, the blue light, you know, right before they're going to sleep at night. And so... You know, there's actually sleep protocols that you can do, and that will impact your weight loss. Um, people aren't mixing up what they're doing with their with their working out. So some people will just continue to run. Uh, there's actually three different metabolic pathways that our bodies are designed to be trained in. Um, and so the third one being aerobic, yes, but what a lot of people don't like to do is what's called working out in the glycolytic phase. And that's where you're out of breath and, and you can't hold a conversation and you're trying to breathe. <laughs> it's, um, uh, that's the very tough phase to be in the metabolic pathway. And then your first one is really getting into your resistance training where you're working with heavier loading. So there is a, a great, uh, I almost call it an artistry to programming properly um, to where we're hitting all three of those metabolic pathways. So, you know, when I have somebody come to me, we're looking at the programming. We're looking at the nutrition that they're taking in. Uh, the other component to it is, you know, what does your life look like? Like if you're someone who's got three kids, you know, a high stress job environment, like all of these things are going to have an impact to the hormones, which means it's going to impact weight loss. So, you know, let's just pile on another element to it. Uh, if we have somebody who's dealing with a thyroid condition, um, you know, there's just so many things when somebody comes to me that's trying to lose weight and we really have to almost like when you start, um, you know, working on your program of recovery, it's, we got to work backwards first. So, all right, let's go and check the boxes, you know, and go through the sleep, nutrition, working out. And, um, 
there's just so much that goes into the answer of that question. And by the way, it's very specific and it is personalized to the individual because every person is different. Correct. Uh, you have some thoughts on um, five steps that would help people feel better in less than five minutes every day. Um, can so you, you, you want to talk about those real quick? Oh, man. Yeah, that's like a quick one for me. Um, okay. uh, this is a good one. Uh, yeah, so when you, when I wake up in the morning, one of the first things I can do, and, and here's the thing, like, um, you can, from a spirituality perspective, uh, I never pressure anybody into what I do for myself. I just share what helps and what works. So, you know, you can pray to whatever God of your choice, you know, higher power, whatever you want to call it. But when I wake up in the morning and I get myself situated, I'm normally a very early riser and I uh, intentionally do that so that I have a little bit of extra time before our three-year-old three-year-old gets up and I'm moving for the day. So, you know, I'm, I'm anywhere between 5.15 to 5.30, 5.45 at the latest. So it gives me an opportunity uh, to where I've got a good half an hour to do some readings, to do my prayer. And so the first thing I do is prayer. Second thing I do is I read scripture. Third thing I do is I read a men's devotional. Fourth thing I do is I read a 24-hour book. And so all of these things start to engage and properly set my mind up from a mindset perspective to start the day. And then lastly, um, I'll do a five-minute little uh, um, thumb through on – I'm actually on TikTok, and I follow specific people for mindset uh, to give me something a little bit for the day. So – you can literally do all of this in five minutes. Uh, you can spend, you know, call it a couple minutes in prayer. Both of the readings that I do take about a minute and then another two minutes on swiping on something on TikTok, whether it's on TikTok or a quick two minute podcast of something that maybe you see the title of and it's brain health or whatever it might be. But that gets you started for the day. And those are good positives because, you know, as soon as we hit the floor running, the arrows start coming at us. I mean, from what people are watching on the news to, you know, this person said that the emails start flying, the text messages are coming in. So what are you doing to shield yourself to start your morning? And if you're not getting up and doing that, I would really encourage, you know, your listeners to give yourself an extra 20 minutes in the morning and just wake up a little bit earlier. And I promise you, I 100 percent guarantee over the next three to four weeks, you're going to start feeling better about yourself just from doing that. Well, that's great advice there. Uh in our closing minutes here together, and I, uh, again, firstly want to apologize for getting the times mixed up. Um, it's all good. No worries, JB. Yeah. And uh, secondly, uh, can behavior change, can a, a behavior change program uh, even help us in life, even if we don't have drug or alcohol addictions? Yes, 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 yes. Um, I actually recently, uh, back in September, I published a book called Behavior Change. The subtitle is Impacting the Next Generation. And I, I originally came out with writing my autobiography, which won't be done till next year. But then uh, Behavior Change was birthed. And I did it in a, in a way that I sat down one day and I'm just like, what is one of the major things that I could give people from my story that they could take 
regardless of having an addiction or not. So maybe you want to change your attitude or there are certain behaviors in your life that aren't adding value to what you're doing. And you're like, you know what? Like, I want to get rid of this. How do I do it? Um, so I, I wrote this book that's very precise. It's quick. It's a quick read. So, uh, you know, you can do this in about 30 minutes and then go apply the information that I give you because it's really a self-discovery of questioning um, through the process of learning of how to analyze your own behavior. So, you know, yeah, to, to your question, you don't have to have an addiction problem to make behavior change. It's literally on different areas of your life. If you're looking to, you know, lose weight, if it's, I need to do more fitness for myself because I want to live a, a, you know, a longevity lifestyle that's healthy. Uh, you know, for me, the reason why I put impacting the next generation as the subtitle is my son who's three years old, you know, I'm, I got to take ownership over myself and have a responsibility at a completely different level because he's watching everything I'm doing. So, you know, that just keeps the fire lit for me. And I know for a lot of people out there that, um, there's always something, I mean, look, like I, (laughs) even in the areas that I'm really good at, I'm still wanting to learn. I'm still wanting to grow. I'm still wanting to evolve. So what do I need to do? I need to work on certain changes. So, uh, yeah, the, anybody, it doesn't matter what they're doing in life, addiction or not, um, can certainly uh, can certainly change their life and have things be way more productive, whether it's better performance at work, you know, better relationships at home. Um, everybody can benefit from having behavior change in their life. This question just popped in my head, and if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. You th- uh, think- I'm all open, buddy. <laughs> you think addiction is uh, uh, nurture or or genetics? <laughs> I think uh, learned behaviors is real. I think um, generational hand me downs is something that uh, you know I've talked about for a long time now. Because if you look back, even in my family tree. You know, you had my father who uh, we didn't even get into that story. Um, Maybe that's for another time, but he was pronounced dead on arrival. He was literally dead for a moment in time at the hospital uh, from drinking. So, you know, he's they revived him. He's still with us today. Thank God. But he's been actually sober for over 26 years. Uh, But then you got his father, my grandfather, who died uh, a diabetic, but he was still drinking. So, you know, there was some medical issues, um, surgeries that went on there. And, you know, he basically died an alcoholic. And then of course you go up that family tree and it keeps going on my mom's side, the same thing, you know, it was very glorified in the summertime up at the cottage, you know, everybody had their drink of choice, happy hour. And that was the focus up there, you know, who was going to the liquor store and, uh, you know, where was everybody getting it? And it was just always a part of the scene, so to speak in any family, um, you know, get together environment. So, I 100% believe that everything that comes from previous generations is passed down to the next. And if we don't take responsibility like my dad did, which then broke the chain for him and uh, his family tree, which then I got sober and continue on breaking the chain. And then, by the way, I've got a brother, too, who's nine years younger that he's got over 11 years of being clean and sober. So, you know, now he's impacting my niece, who's two years old, and he's got another one on the way in about two weeks. And, uh, you know, when you start talking about future generations, it 100%, those learned behaviors, like my son seeing me, you know, in the morning eating healthy, he wants to take his vitamins with me. He wants to work out. He starts flexing now. Like these are all learned behaviors. So, 
uh, 100% it can be passed down to the next generation. And uh, you mentioned the subtitle for your book. Do you have a title for the upcoming book? Uh, well, the, 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 the book that's published on Amazon and Kindle is Behavior Change, Impacting okay. the Next Generation. Um, the new book that will be coming out next year is uh, Scars of Addiction, okay. a, story, a Story of Redemption is the subtitle. So, yeah, Scars of Addiction is uh, is going to be the title for that one. People are listening. Is there a way for them to contact you? Yeah, I have. I'm on all social media platforms. Well, uh, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, TikTok, Instagram. Um, Rick Smith Change is, uh, is, is the tagline or is the handle on most of those. Um, but my website is www.ricksmithchange.com. And... Uh, you know, actually, you can dive in a little bit deeper on my story and a little bit more about me on there with doing guest speaking and, um, you know, being in the media, whatnot. But uh, people can direct message me on there. And uh, the title of the book again, the books again, or so uh, the one that's currently published on Amazon and Kindle, it's Behavior Change, uh, okay. subtitle Impacting the Next Generation. And then the second one that will be out next year is Scars of Addiction. Okay. Subtitle, subtitle to that one is A Story of Redemption. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you uh, agreeing to come on and giving of your time. It's a wonderful story. It sounds like it's going to have a very good uh, ending to it um, with the changes in your life and the happiness in your family. And I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Absolutely, JB. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here with you guys. So thank you again. Not a problem. When we uh, when we uh, finish up here and I get things put together, I'm going to see your photo of the. It's actually it's a drawing of your grandfather, Bear McCurry. Wow, in his time that's in crazy. Yeah. that's absolutely crazy. The they had a, there was a famous artist in St. Louis, and I can't remember his name. He sketched all the players. You know, the Plager brothers to Noel yeah. McCart to Glenn yeah. Hall, Red Barons and Frank St. Marseille, all those guys. Gary Unger. Yeah, he and uh, they would uh, show up in the St. Louis paper and they kids would we would cut them out and collect them. Well, my brother lived next to Bob Plager for years and wow. Bob would bring him stuff. Uh, and what he gave him one time was uh, a couple of sets of these uh, artist renderings of the original players. So I'll send you wow. a picture of your uh, grandfather's uh, drawing here. Oh, thank you so much. That I, that just that blows my mind. It's funny how uh, certain people get put into our lives. That's uh, that's pretty yeah. cool. Well, I appreciate you, uh, Rick, and I appreciate your story. This has been Rick Smith. Junior here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. 
And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious, dude. What y'all think about this, man? Hey, man. Hey, man. Give me the bubble gum in this. I'm up, though. With so much drama in the LBC, it's kind of hard being a Snoop D-O-double-G. But I somehow, someway, keep coming up with funky, yeah, this shit like every single day. May I kick a little something for the G's and make a few wins as I breeze. Welcome back to JB's Low Tech Podcast. Put a bow on today's show. Heed the warning of uh, Rick Smith Jr., whatever you drink. Of choice, and now with some drugs being legalized, your drug of choice, moderation is the key. And just do healthy things on top of that, be it working out, uh, keeping your mental health, uh, eating right, all those things become even more important as the older you get, and also to keep your career going. I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, you know the outlets to listen tell a friend, and um, continue to uh, listen to the show and also reach out to Bradshaw and Bryant with your legal needs if you have those. And um, I want to thank you again for listening to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. Right on. Negro, black, African-American, black, black, black. Django, J.B. Damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know J.B. Our great Negro sex machine.